Am I coming through? I am definitely, definitely coming through. Okay. Let's just... Okay, so um, you may, if you have been here for the other two services we've been doing this particular series, um, the start will feel like, oh geez, we're... We're really getting reminded of the same things here. Um, but if you're new to it, it's good to go through over the basics of what this series has been. It's called Self-Feeding Program. Um, and um, yeah, if you have been here for it, um, yeah, these are, these are principles that are a way of approaching our faith and a focus from the pulpit that I think is super helpful for us. Um, many of you have been Christians for many years. And I think a series like this that, that just reminds us that we have a responsibility to posture our everyday lives to receive whatever the Lord has for us. And so um, we're, today we're looking at self-feeding program. The last one we're going to do is the idea of um, the person with healthy faith has trusted friends they go on the journey with. And so, but before we do that, let's just go over the principles over this series. So this series has four premises with it. The first one is that the Bible has made it clear what practices nourish our faith. It has not been mysterious about it. The Bible actually explicitly says, if you do A, B, and C, your faith will be nourished. It says it quite plainly. The next, the next premise in this series that we've been looking at is the Bible has made it clear what practices build resilient faith. In, in fact, when we talk about you know, the first part of the series in the self-feeding program, hearing and obeying the Word of God, the Word of God tells you that if you don't fill your life with the word of God, you are like a house that when the storm comes will fall. Tells you quite bluntly. Don't you dare fill your life with anything but the word of God. And, and so if the first two are true, the third has to be true, doesn't it? It is then our responsibility to build those practices into our lives. And the, and the theological framing that we have on this comes in the last point that the transformation of our hearts is something that God does we don't we don't supersede ourselves over to the work God does but that we have a responsibility to partner with and so you know and we look and I we look at the same three examples each time just to help us chew over what that means what that looks like so Matthew chapter 11 verse 27 to 30 really well-known verses all things have been committed to me by my father no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So in this picture, we're not confused who does the leading. We yoke ourselves to Jesus. He's the one that leads us to a restful place. He's the one that teaches those that are gentle and humble in heart. And yet, that same passage tells you that you have a responsibility to intentionally yoke yourself to him. So we can't get away from there's some, of our, there's some responsibility put on us in this passage. If we, we can see the same balance when we look at this famous little um, part of John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can, branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
No confusion who the source of life is. Okay, we're not the vine. No confusion over who causes us to grow. And yet, and yet, it's, we're not neutral in this, are we? We are told to intentionally remain, intentionally abide. So it's really the same thing. It's God who does it, but we have a responsibility to partner with what God wants to do. And the last example, I just want to read this for popular verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. <coughs> Excuse me. I find it fascinating, don't you, that God transforms us. God does a work in us. And yet, that's those same scriptures also say, be transformed. So there's, it says something that seems to grab at your responsibility in the process. Be transformed. God transform you, but be transformed. And so I don't think we can get away from a definition that has those two factors, that the transformation of our hearts is something God does but that we have a responsibility to partner with. And so the key question of this series that has driving what we're talking about is that if God is ready and poised to transform you from the inside out, what key practices set us up to partner with him in that? So presuming that God wants to lead you in good places, presuming that God wants to transform your heart in good ways, what are the ways, what are the things that we can do in our everyday life to help us agree and, and partner with what God wants to do in us. And the reason we focus on practices is because theology, psychology agree that what we do on a regular basis forms what we love and what we long for. What you do on a regular basis forms what you love and what you long for. What, here's, a, here's a haunting statement that I've been saying all through the series. Who you are right now, your everyday habits are perfectly designed to produce. Perfectly designed. Are, your everyday habits are a perfectly designed system to produce you. Um, and so it's just true that what we do forms our loves and our longings. What we do does something to us. You're not dynamic as a human. You're, all, you're, you're, sorry, you're not static as a human being. You're always dynamic. You're always moving in a direction. You are always becoming someone. What you love, if you love gardening in this room, and I, you know, I, I've confessed I struggle with gardening, it's a tough thing to do for me. It's not, not enjoyable in the least. But if you love gardening, which there are many people in this service who do, you know, it's a good thing. It's a very, very worthwhile pursuit. But you, did not, you were not born loving gardening. Did you know that? You didn't come out of the womb going, geez, I just want to do some weeding and some cultivating. You, you cultivated your love for gardening by gardening. And the more you gardened and read about gardening and gardened and read about gardening and gardened and what shows on gardening and gardened, you cultivated a heart that loves gardening. It's the same way with like coffee. You might love, I love coffee, I love coffee, but I was not born loving coffee. You may love the Panthers, don't know why, but if you, if you, you may love the Panthers, but you were not born loving the Panthers. Everything you love, you cultivated a love for by what you did. And, and, the, and the simple science of it is this. And I love, like I said, I love telling this to young people because they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So the pathway to enjoying reading the Bible involves reading the Bible. You can't cultivate a love for something without doing it. 
And if you and even if the first time you read it you found it hard, that makes complete sense. Because when you do something you never do, you find it hard. Why don't we apply the same logic sometimes we apply to everyday life to to the scriptures? It's like it, reading the Bible is something you practice and you cultivate a love for and you get more used to and you understand it more and more. It's the same thing. If you were to learn karate, that's how it would work. If you tried to just do karate without any lessons, how would you go? You'd struggle. You'd absolutely struggle. So what we do on a regular basis forms what we love and what we long for. So hence why this series has had a heavy focus on what we do. And when I say what we do, my target zone isn't here, not in the organized ministry space. Because if, if all you do to nourish your faith is in the organized ministry space, then, you've, then, then what we have is a, a type of faith that's very dependent on what is organized for us. I'm talking about what you fill your life with out there. Because if it's out there, and if the habits are built into your life out there, then friends, you have resilient faith. That if even if all the organized ministry were to stop tomorrow, your faith will be fed, your faith will be nourished, because you have inbuilt the habits that do that regardless. Doesn't mean we should stop church. It's a good thing. You get what I mean? So we've looked at hearing and obeying God's word. That was the first one we looked at. And it was the simple truth that Jesus had the guile to say, had the gall to say to an audience, not only that if you hear and obey my words, so, so if you hear my words and put them into practice, I love that he says that, hear my words and put them into practice. If you do that, you'll be like this house that is strong and the storms came, but after the storm it was still standing. Now that's a pretty bold statement. But the more, I, I think it was even more bold what he said afterwards. He said, if you don't, if you don't hear my words and put them into practice, when those same storms come, he had the, he had the gall to say to the audience, you will fall. That's so strong, isn't it? That, that, that's one of my arguments that Jesus was not just a moral teacher. Because like, if I, just a good teacher said that to me, I'd say, well, well, clearly you have a very high opinion of yourself. You know, Jesus actually, you know, he's the, he's the you know, most intimate picture of what God is like we have as the Son of God. And he's, he's saying, he's, everything he says is pure truth. And he says, if you disregard this, you will fall. So we must hear and obey God's word in our life. And we looked at the Lord's Prayer as a way of accessing um, different attributes of God to lean into. And if you want to know what the, that may sound a little, I don't know quite what he meant by that. You can go back and hear the sermon again on our podcast as well. Um, but we, we looked at the whole idea that the Lord's Prayer, each line leans into specific attributes of God. Father, King, Provider, Forgiver, Protector, Deliverer. And, and it's actually a lens through which we can place our hope into the different attributes of God at the times in our lives when we need it. And we looked at how Jesus did this, it seemingly. In, in, when you look at his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, a lot of his statements line up to good statements in the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus, in his time of need, is leaning into his prayer to, to help place his hope in the Father, giving us an example that we should too. And whether it's through the Lord's Prayer or through other means, the Bible has told us plainly, if you place your hope in the Lord, you will have renewed strength. The Bible has told you plainly that if you present your requests to the Lord, which the Lord's Prayer can help us bring out of us, 
you will have peace that transcends understanding. And you have been told by that same Bible that if you abide and the Lord's Prayer helps us abide, you will be fruitful. To choose not to do those things is to choose to be not as strong, is to choose to have not as much peace, and is to choose to not be as fruitful. So we looked at how hearing and obeying God's word, feeling and praying the Lord's Prayer are two things we can fill our lives with in and outside of organised ministry that will build resilient and nourished faith in us. The last one is having trusted friends on our faith journey is such an important cog in having resilient and nourished faith. Having trusted friends on the journey. So let's start with the Corinthians passage we looked at that Ruth um, read for us. Now, when this obviously she was right to point out the focus of this passage is spiritual gifting. We're going to take a step back and have a broad, and if you're at the all-in service, um, this was a bit of a similar focus. Um, because we are going to look at a lot of other passages today. So I just want to make the broad point from this passage that we read, and we don't need to reread it, is that diversity is intentional in the design of the church. You, if you are close to many of the people in this room, you will be completely, if you're married to someone in this room, you will be completely aware at a very deep level, and my son's running around the church, and that's okay, we'll just... Um, if you will be completely aware that God has made you very different. I mean, has anyone been married here for a long time and just learnt that you're the same person? Same, you know, the same things stress you, you're interested in the same things, you have the same way of approaching things. That's just not true, isn't it? Our diversity is, atten is, is intentional. And when we look at that diversity, the Bible is telling us that that diversity is meant to be brought together to make us stronger. That's why we need trusted friends in our lives. Because your friends that you go on the faith journey with have gifts you need for your faith to be strong. Whether they're gifts of being particularly discerning, particularly hospitable, particularly good at confrontation and rebuke, particularly good at listening. That you need trusted friends because you yourself have growth edges and weak points because we're meant to be the body of Christ, the diversity in the body of Christ, in gifting, in personality, in, in different experiences, it, bringing that together is designed to make us stronger. And the simple point with the body of Christ that we can make is that we all bring something valuable, which means there are two postures that are out of the question. If you have the self-loathing posture, that you have nothing to offer, unfortunately the Bible disagrees. The Bible says you have something that if you submit it to the body of Christ helps make all of us stronger by submitting it to the body of Christ. So if you're in the self-loathing camp, this, this has something to say to you. But also if you're in the self-sufficient camp, I have been a Christian for 20 years. I have read the Bible times, times over. Everything the preacher says I've heard before, I need not, my friends. I just need YouTube, a few good commentaries, a nice study and just a little polite hello to people on Sundays. I don't need to be close to anyone. I am sufficient in my faith. Well, I have to say to you, the Bible disagrees with you as well. And I would actually say, not only are you a little wrong, you're severely mistaken. Because people who take that line in life, that incredibly isolated, 
I don't need anyone lying. I believe they twist into something that's pretty ugly, actually, on the inside. So we can't be in both camps. So we need trusted friends because diversity is tensional and we all bring something value. And one thing you'll note is I'm trying to bring this sort of language outside the realm of often when we talk about spiritual gifts, we focus a lot just on church ministry. Well, some are good at singing and some are good at preaching and some are good at, some are good at you know, um, encouraging. And we think of it in a, in a kind of organised ministry context. But what I'm trying to tell you is that, and I'm going to prove this in the way Jesus and the disciples operated, is that these spiritual gifts are meant to have um, absolute relevance in your everyday lives. That we're not meant to be isolated from each other in our everyday lives. And our spiritual gifts actually help us face life out there, not just help us run services in here. Um, so that's why I'm talking about it in this way. And what I want to show you is, um, oh, don't worry about that one. I thought I'd delete that one. Anyway, that's, a, that's some good points there, but we need to move through some other points. So following Jesus was always meant to be done with trusted friends. We thrive in the context of real relationship. As Christians, it's not just the words of Jesus that are crucial and instructive for us. It's the ways of Jesus. It's the works of Jesus. Jesus is the most intimate picture of what God is like. And what we're going to see is that Jesus modelled to us that leaning into trusted friends should be the norm. Because you know when Jesus was going through hard things, he surrounded himself with trusted friends. And if anyone had reason to be self-sufficient, you would think the Son of God might be in the camp of not needing trusted friends. But Jesus himself... When he was struggling, or not, maybe struggle is not the best word, but when he was going through hard things, he surrounded himself with close friends and went to solitary places. Isn't that interesting? That the Son of God modelled leaning on trusted friends. Um, and we'll, go, we'll look at that as well. And what I want to say is this, and I, and I believe this with a real strong conviction, you need others for strong and resilient faith, period. When I meet people who have strong, balanced, resilient, nourished, loving, humble faith, one thing I can count on is that as a general posture to life, they are open to the input of others. They are open to the perspectives of others. They are open to the wisdom of others. These are the people who have soft, teachable, leadable faith. And if you talk to them about their faith journey, they will always be able to point out individuals who were so crucial to them that they opened themselves up to, that discipled them in powerful ways. The person who cannot name a single person who was positively inputted into their faith, I'm just going to bet their faith's not very mature. That's just going to be my little gamble as I get to know them. We'll see. You need others for strong and resilient faith. You need their encouragement, their rebuke, their discernment, their prayer, their listening, their support. I truly believe the body of Christ concept, one of the things that communicates to me, and I said this last week, if you were here, and when we did the combined service, shutting out your brothers and sisters in Christ is a form of shutting out Christ. Shutting out your brothers and sisters in Christ is a form of shutting out Christ. We are the body of Christ. He dwells in us collectively as a people. 
We can't fly solo. We can't fly solo. So let's just have a look at some of the ways, not beyond the words. Let's just look at what Jesus did. So look at, let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and, he to, and sent out to proclaim the message. Now, you guys know this as well. When we gather other scriptures, Jesus had a crew of at least 72. Yeah, because he sent out 72 at some point. He gathered a crew of at least. And then within that crew, he had a closer group of 12. And within that 12, he had a closer Peter, James and John, who were actually closer. So straight away, isn't it interesting that Jesus modelled different levels of closeness? Jesus wasn't shy about, no, these people are going to be my closer friends. And that's okay. He didn't apologise for that. He didn't say to the others, well, oh no, I have to spread my friendship evenly. No, I have those that, because everyone needs close, trusted friends. And he's modelling that. That's my suggestion. And then what I want to look at, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30, I find this fascinating. Right from the start, what we are modelled is that discerning learning from God and discerning things from God is shown as a group activity. Look at this exchange, but this is not the only exchange like this. The disciples work things out together. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. I'm just showing that exchange because that's not the only exchange like that. Jesus would present things to the disciples and they would discern it together. They would work it out together. They were trusted friends on the road of faith together. This is not... And so... So that's the first thing I want to point out. Jesus had closer friends. And Jesus models working things out together. That's the type of ministry he set up. Let's have a look here. Let's look at how Jesus sends out people on mission. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then later on, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, we'll just stop there because the main, like I said, we're jumping around to look at the ways of Jesus. We could exegete all these passages and find out all the beauty in them. But the main point of this, did you notice how Jesus sends them out on mission? Does he send them out by themselves? Right. He sends, And then, so they go out in two by two, and then it seems they regather and debrief and share stories about what happened while they were out. So straight away, I cannot find a single picture in the ways of Jesus where there's a solo version of doing faith. Do you think the ways of Jesus are meant to be instructive for us for how we do faith? Jesus from the start, I can't find an example of some disciple being some lone ranger. They do things together. It's always in the context of trusted friends. You do faith together. I find this, now the next two... And someone pointed this out to me. I'd never picked it up in my natural reading. So the context of this is that Jesus has just learned that his cousin has died. Now, Jesus is fully human, fully divine. Do you think when Jesus hears that his cousin has died, he's affected? Absolutely. 
and, and it makes some of the movements straight after this really natural in my thinking. So Mark chapter 6, verse 29 to 34, on hearing this, so that John the Baptist had died, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And it's so easy to miss. But I think it's a fair bet that there's a connection between Jesus just losing his cousin and then Jesus wanting to be away with his trusted friend. Now, this time gets interrupted and Jesus understands that life happens. So even though he went to be in a solitary place, we read in verse 33 that, but many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them, which was not, um, you know, which would have been hard. While Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. I just think we're seeing the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus and the love of Jesus, that even though Jesus is personally mourning something, he hasn't lost his love for the crowds. And he has to just hold those things in tension. But just to, to hit it home, that I think that Jesus is retreating here because he's going through something hard. In the Garden of Gethsemane, guys, Jesus wants to be surrounded by his friends. And he's frustrated that they're sleeping. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Oh, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus, in maybe his most hard time, his toughest time, wants his friends awake and praying with him and surrounding him. Right from the start, the type of ministry that is modelled to us is the type of ministry that vulnerably shares the faith journey with others. There is no solo version of doing the faith walk that Jesus presents. And you're welcome to go through the book of Acts. See if you can find it. See if you can find any example of discipleship that is solo. I don't think you'll succeed. I don't think you'll succeed. We need trusted friends for the journey, people. We need them. Shutting out people is a form of shutting out Christ. Without trusted friends, you miss out on discernment. Without trusted friends, you miss out on rebuke that you need. I have friends in my life that can rebuke me. I don't always like it. But there are people who have them. They're close enough to me. They know me well enough. They can speak the truth to me. They can give me... Because we're not always as self-aware as we think we are. <laughs> That's just being human. And sometimes, Nate, 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 you just, you, you did a terrible job of listening there. I had my, one of my, first, one of my, um, the pastor I had at Sinclair Baptist before I pastored there, you know, he, he was great for me. I did this sermon, I thought I nailed it. Young guy full of hubris, full of pride. Yeah, look at them. They were laughing. They were just enjoying themselves. And he said, Nate, I think, I think that whole first bit had nothing to do with anything but entertaining people. 
And he just rebuked me. And, I, and you know what? Where would I be without those people? The people that have the permission, the closeness to speak truth into your life. Without trusted friends, you miss out on encouragement. Because sometimes we just need people to tell us the promises of God and it just comes and, and the encouragement of what they know about us and the encouragement of our gifts. And sometimes we can't hear it unless it comes from a trusted friend. We need it for accountability. And we need it for modelling as well. That's why it's so important that we need to find ways, and it's hard in this generation, for the younger Christians here to see the lives of older Christians. Because how can they know? Like, modelling is so important. Jesus had the disciples follow him and watch him do life and watch him do everything so they could see this is what it is like to be faithful to the Father. We miss out on all of this with trusted friends. It says dream, which is a little bit accidental. Just, you know, there's a bit of a dream acronym there. So... I would have failed miserably this morning, failed miserably, if anyone leaves this room and thinks they can do faith solo. I would have done a terrible job. You've completely missed because I've tried to say it again and again and repeat. And so hopefully you're inspired to go, hey, I need to pray. How, how am I doing faith with people? I need to be doing this with people. Um, and so there are certain things we can do. First of all, some people have rhythms that have no room for others. So we need to have time and room for connection. Trusted friends are predictably present in your lives in a rhythmic way. You know when they're showing up. You know when they're around. Obviously, a life group can be a good way of having this sort of dynamic in your life. Gather with other Christians at specific times in your week. If you're not in a life group, sometimes it's as simple as, hey, meeting up with a couple of people and praying regularly. That can be the journey that starts. I've had wonderful friendships start that way discipleship relationships that have started that way we just met together we just prayed together we just read something together and if you're feeling really confused i believe it's enough for you to just ask look lord i just need to re-engage with some trusted friends i know for some of you what might come up is this this person has always been important for my faith journey and i haven't caught up with them in you know it might just be that geez they always were really good for my faith i need to reconnect whatever you do this is another way of saying to you, this is another habit you can put into your life that will ensure that your faith is nourished and resilient, having trusted friends. So when we're inspired, if you're inspired here to invest in this way, we need to make decisions, not just stay in the realm of inspired. Oh, geez, I was inspired this morning by the sermon. We need to decide what it will look like for us to respond. We should tell someone what we've decided to do. We should repeat it because otherwise we don't form in a new direction unless we repeat things. And then we're in a position to evaluate how we can do it. But either way, we need to have trusted friends in our lives. So finishing with the self-feeding program. I don't need to go over each of them again. All I will say is this. God is ready, friends. God is poised. God is willing to teach you, to lead you, to love you. Will you make it as easy for him as possible by filling your life with the habits that partner with him in that process? I am convinced 
that if St Bringwood Baptist Church were people, were full of people who could say, you know what, if this church stuff stopped tomorrow, I have so resiliently put these habits into my life that actually our community, if all the official stuff stopped, we'd still be this super strong, thriving community because we have filled our lives with the habits that, re- that nourish and make our faith resilient. Wouldn't that be such a fruitful church? A church that, man, you could just, ah, oh, these people, they just live it out. They don't even, you know, I just think that would be such a fruitful church to be a part of. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you're ready. If we abide in you, if we yoke ourselves to you, if we place our hope in you, you're ready, Lord. You are ready to renew us with strength, with peace, with understanding, with hope. But Lord, sometimes we're stuck in habits that aren't helping us partner with you. We're stuck in ways of doing things that are not conducive to partnering with what you want to do in our lives. Won't you help us fill our lives with the habits that help us follow you? Help us have trusted friends for the journey. Help us know what that looks like. Help us put that in our eyes. Help us read your word regularly. Help us pray to you regularly. Fill us with the habits that fill us with you. Amen. Amen. We are going to have the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do is we're going to, um, Margaret's going to come up. We're going to sing the first two verses of In Christ Alone. Then we'll do communion. And then we'll sing the last two verses. So won't you stand and sing the first two verses of In Christ Alone with us. Mm -hmm. 